0: the excess the blood the satanic imagery these are weird dudes with bad brains
1: lifestyle podcasts and there are death style podcasts (laughs) you are listening to watching movies at the bar a podcast about bar movies and movie bars i'm thomas Grabinski, and i am joined by as always my co-host bethy squires bethy how's it going
0: uh (laughs) you motherfucker (laughs) wait are we a lifestyle podcast or a death style podcast
1: I, I think the, the way that we lifestyle podcast mm. will determine the way that we death style podcast.
0: Absolutely. Okay. Th- then I'm doing great now that I've achieved this clarity. Hell yeah. Of inter-art inter project communication, which is the key to all good works of art. is healthy communication styles.
1: Couldn't agree more. And we are so excited tonight tonight at uh, 1 p.m pacific time to be joined by alison Zeitman, um who's a writer for full frontal with samantha b and maybe a metallica head
2: yeah i'm hoping we'll get into that uh i didn't want to interrupt you guys but i think it's a death style podcast because it's about like sitting sedentary and drinking alcohol right so like
0: i'm i may be walking around the room occasionally you don't know <laughs> I don't, I'm not saying it's a bad thing. I'm just, uh,
2: it's more metal, actually, that it's a death-style mm. podcast, so.
1: Yeah, I agree with you. I think life is, like, a fixed point on a line, and, like, death is a vector. Like, we're zooming towards something, and I'm fine with that.
2: <laughs> Great. Yeah, I was, I always thought that Metallica, like, you know, as a child of the, early 2000s very devoted to my local alt rock and indie radio stations i thought metallica was lame as hell um <laughs> but i've grown to appreciate them more that there's that like cello quartet that covers metallica songs i remember like, the first time i heard them I like oh them. yeah yeah the first time i had them many years ago i was like oh like there's like a lot of like depth and complexity to this music and they you know they're occasional occasional hits that I like and then yeah honestly watching this documentary I was like oh there's there's some craft going into this process and it made me appreciate them more
1: so the lead that we're burying is that we are talking about Metallica some kind of monster which is a 2004 documentary about the aforementioned Metallica um we're gonna dig into it real deep but Beth you looked like you were gonna say something
0: oh I was gonna just start out how we we try to start out every podcast. Allison is asking our guest, "Uh, what their relationship to watching movies and bars is? Do you have a relationship with that activity?"
2: Um, I've never gone to a bar like specifically to watch a movie. If it is a quiet bar and a movie is on, I appreciate that. Like, I'd rather have that than like sports or something. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like my most recent memory is being in that Mexican restaurant in Hollywood with you and others. Uh, We don't, I could could shout them all out here, but I won't. (laughs) Uh, Watching that, like, very, like, B-horror movie, whatever was going on while we were eating nachos and drinking happy hour margaritas.
0: Yeah, I'm so glad you brought that up because I was going to say the other, act. we don't talk about bar food that much on the show, but... Allison and I, along with, uh, we'll say friend of the pod, Sam Roudman, um, <laughs> most likely future guest, we'll figure it out, had a going concern nacho club for a while that came out of the nachos episode of Adam Ruins Everything that we all worked on together. Um, so we would go to different bars and sample their nachos. And for a while, I kept a very detailed spreadsheet of how we felt about the bar and about <laughs> the nachos. Cause they were different. Different vibes. Uh, Did
1: you say a spreadsheet? Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm yeah. glad that we both organize our lives and thoughts in the same bizarro <laughs> data oriented way.
0: My life data set dictates my death data set. <laughs>
2: <Yeah>. <laughs> I
0: would not have thought
2: to do that, but I was very happy
0: to participate in reporting <laughs> my, my data. <laughs> but yeah, we were at Velvet Margarita in hollywood and they wait were what is
1: what is velvet margarita
0: velvet margarita is or maybe was i feel like it might have closed during the pandemic I, I never see it open anymore but that could just be that i'm not going out tbd but it was a restaurant on in that weird part of coenga that's like still in 2004 like the clubby part of <laughs> coenga okay sick and i like it there it's cool Um, we were watching. I feel like it was Santos versus the vampire women, or Santos versus Frankenstein. I think it was versus
2: Frankenstein, or maybe they put on another one after. But I feel like I remember Frankenstein.
0: And then they put on, on the the Mexican version of Dracula, which has just like, it <laughs> yeah. uses like half of the footage of the Bela Lugosi one, but then they put in <laughs> a different guy as Dracula. It's like I, people, some people like it more than English version Dracula, but it was cool. It was nice. I don't remember how the nachos were, but uh, the chips and dip there were always good because um, you get like a warm bean dip as well as like your salsa.
2: Right. I think so. I recall enjoying that more than not that the nachos were bad but it, I, I if memory serves then i could be i don't know just entirely making this up because memory is a complicated thing and mine is just bad anyway uh, i think bad, they were huh? kind of like kind of like basic nachos you know what i mean or it just sort of like okay like yeah there's like I, I like maybe it was like the like the pre-melted like nacho cheese mm. nacho cheese poured it might not have been like that level but I think we were like, yeah, these are fine. But the atmosphere,
0: A+. It was very, like, I said that, that the Cahuenga, Cahuenga Wood, I feel like people call that area, or the Cahuenga Corridor, some shit like that. Anyway, I said that that's trapped in 2004, but that restaurant is more like 1992. And that's fun. Because <laughs> yeah. there's, like, a lot of, um, like, industrial metal sculptures of, like, sacred hearts and, like... Uh, a big wall of um, velvet paintings in the, like, hallway to the bathroom.
1: Just to situate this, this would be Metallica self-titled era if we're talking 1992.
0: Mm. Yeah, for sure. (laughs) It does have a sort of enter Sandman, like, that's the, like, the lighting style we're dealing with, very chiaroscuro in our shadings. We decided, you know, when you left, obviously Nacho Club left with you, as did our hearts, but... Your your favorite nacho place is still Holloway and Echo Park? I think so, yeah. Now that I'm
2: living in Philadelphia again, I have revisited my favorite nachos in Philadelphia, even though I I knew that there were some slight alterations. I don't know if it's a new chef, new ownership, whatever. And it's a
0: toss-up. I think I might
2: still go with the Holloway ones over over those Philadelphia nachos
0: where are the philadelphia nachos if you don't want to if you don't want to blow up your spot just say we'll talk about it <laughs> oh there's like
2: oh, it's it's not it's like right in center city and then there's like they've expanded with like a few other locations around the city so it's not blowing it up at all um jose pistolas is the i guess the mm. flagship and they used to do instead of refried beans they did black beans and pickled red pepper and jalapenos yes And now it's refried refried beans and non-pickled, those things. And they're still really good, but I miss the pickling in particular.
1: I'm a sucker for pickled pretty much anything. But like a a taco with a pickled red onion to me is everything Mm -hmm. that I need.
0: Key shit. Um, And I will just say that my favorite nachos... Um, from that exploration, where the jackfruit nachos at the Mermaid in downtown LA. Oh,
2: those were, yeah, those were good
0: too. I feel like they might have had the sticky like nacho cheese, plastic cheese, but <laughs> the jackfruit is so good there that I wasn't mad. I couldn't be mad.
1: All right, well we've got the uh, nacho segment of the show out of the way. Should we should we get <laughs> into the rock talk? Hell yeah! Okay, Allison. So you got into kind of I would the actually first... say
2: less talk, more rock, but. Whatever
1: you want. To do. <laughs> I like that too. We're we're gonna cut the audio and just put load and reload at one point two five times speed, um, <laughs> and and you'll have an hour of the good shit. Um. So so we got a bit of Allison's background with Metallica, but Bethy, independent of some kind of monster, what is your relationship with Metallica? What is your perception of Metallica? Give us a quick history.
0: I don't know if I. I might not have a relationship with Metallica. I, they were just sort of like a band that was on MTV when I was growing up. When I was getting more into metal as a teen, it was much more um whatever Scandinavian metal was doing at the time, like power metal, doom metal, black metal. So to me, Metallica was like, mm, not dad music, but like <laughs> uh, childless uncle music.
1: Oh sick. Yeah, that's that's mm-hmm. dead on, I think. Cargo shorts maybe?
0: Yeah, big time. kilt music. <laughs> um and I first saw some kind of monster at Rhinos, the all ages club that I worked at, uh downloaded from Napster. That's sick. <laughs>
1: that also I think is political.
0: Mhm. Yeah.
2: I I am embarrassed we might, um, you guys might be planning to get into this anyway, but I am embarrassed to say that I remember being like, I think most of the culture was at that time being like, oh my God, like these like metal guys are going to talk about like their feelings and they're like, <sighs> and now I'm just like, that was so needed. Like, it's, it's kind of like amazing that like, A, they were open to that and B, that they were open to doing it so publicly. So that's just an example of how I've evolved as a person, I guess.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I think I've gotten much more pro-Metallica being in therapy and somehow even more anti-Metallica suing Napster than before. That makes sense.
1: I think it's important collectively for our relationship with Metallica to be complicated. Mm -hmm. Uh, but, But Bethy, the fact that you don't have really a vested interest in the band, or a relationship, um, I, I think is an important counterpoint in the discussion, because I am familiar with Metallica, but I do think that some kind of monster probably plays for a non-fan, right?
0: I think so. I, I do want to know more about what your personal relationship with Metallica is.
1: Yeah, so I, I, I have, like... I think I'm somewhere in the middle. I, growing up, thought of Metallica as a t shirt band, so I didn't really chase it. I knew, like, Master of Puppets, I knew Enter Sandman, but I never, like, spent time with the discography. And then in college, when I was, like, getting really deep into metal, again, more, more European stuff, but I was like, okay, I need to walk it back and listen to Metallica. I, I love Kill Em All. I think it's sick. I think it's uh just like a really fun thrash record. I think Ride the Lightning is in a similar mode, although it got a little more complex. Um they're not like uh a band I worship, but I think they're fun. And I saw them at the Rose Bowl in <laughs> 2019. I, I, I literally at like 10 a.m. my friend Evan texted me and he was like, Hey, I have a, an extra ticket for Metallica at the Rose Bowl. Do you want to go? And there was no part of me that was going to say no to that. So we went, and it was nasty. They're like, uh, they're a machine. They sound incredible. They have, like, really goofy visuals, and I had a great time. So I have spent some time with Metallica, but to me, the definitive document is some kind of monster. I think it's amazing. And and I, Allison, the thing that you said is, is what is most exciting to me about the documentary, which is that it feels like, a deconstruction of this hyper-visible masculine image of rock and roll. Um, Yeah. It it feels so raw and, like, not hagiographic in a way that I'm kind of shocked it ever saw the light of day. Like, if the band members were more self-aware, this should have been buried.
0: (laughs) Or, you know, maybe... I I hear what you're saying, like, it's very... It's, like, bad for their brand or whatever, but they do seem like people by the end of the movie is like, oh, they do seem like people who are invested in growing. And like, that's almost like by the time that they're doing this album, it seems like that's the, that's what they want to be most known for is like remaining, um like develop. They don't want to be like a, a legacy act. They don't want to be like resting on their laurels. And so I think that this like deconstruction of their image is good for that, that branding.
2: Yeah. It's also like, The two, two of the biggest egos in the group are like middle age and like have children at this point. So it seems like maybe they've like matured to a place that like this would not have happened when they were like 22, obviously. And I don't know if it was overall bad for their, their brand or if like that was just sort of like the glib takeaway that like we had as a, as a culture. It might have been. I don't know. I think. I think like it's just interesting that we we wouldn't have something like this today. Even like the very like raw like Taylor Swift documentary it was still like well like she was an executive like that kind of thing where it's like everyone's so carefully curating their image even even when they're being like real. It's so right. carefully not scripted, but you know selective in terms of what what they'll show, and, like, you know, what kind of point of view they want to get across. And I think, other than Kirk Hammett, uh, who is just a sweet baby angel caught up in this mess.
1: Absolute sweetheart.
0: (laughs) Just a cute little guy.
2: Yeah, everybody has moments where, like, they don't look so great in this. Some more than others. But, yeah, oh my gosh. Poor Kirk Hammett. But, like, the the one time that he gets, like, a little bit, like, up in arms is when, like, I think, like, James, or somebody says something like, you know, like, oh, I feel like I'm cut off from, like, these decisions, blah, 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 decisions are made before I get in the room. And then Kirk's like, well, yeah, so that's been my last 15 years with the band. (laughs) That's the only moment where he gets, like, remotely, like, a little bit bitchy, and he just suffers in silence for a lot of it.
0: Yeah. He also pushes back when Lars Ulrich is like, we need to move beyond guitar solos. We shouldn't have any guitar solos. That's true. Is an insane thing to say to the band
2: Metallica. (laughs) Yeah, and also to the guitar soloists. Like, what? (laughs)
1: Yeah. Yeah, truly what they're known for. Uh, Before we, like, really dig into it, should I give a quick flyover, just so people who haven't seen Some Kind of Monster have some context for this?
2: Sure. Those fools.
1: Yeah, exactly. So, Some Kind of Monster is a... Two and a half hour epic of a documentary about Metallica, a band that has sold over 60 million albums in their career. They're one of the five best selling artists, according to Nielsen Tracking. They're a- an absolute juggernaut, but this is uh, an extremely intimate and vulnerable period in their career. So they came around in 1983 uh, for a decade, were just crushing arenas, playing unbelievable tours, and then. They started to lose steam a little bit. They started to veer into radio rock. And then for like six years, they kind of disappeared. The relationship within the band was in a really bad place. And also after sort of leading the charge, suing Napster and sort of taking their music from the hands of fans, they were in a really precarious situation with the public. Um, in this documentary just spends time with them over 715 days in therapy trying to repair their relationship as a band and make a record in a totally new context and it's fucking fascinating
0: I'd like to add to that that it's also right after like the the documentary basically starts right after their longtime bassist Jason quits and at the he's in the documentary and he says to the interviewer is like I didn't want to do this group therapy thing because it felt like it was just something that the record company or the management company was making us do so they could keep making money off us. And this movie is really interesting when you look at it as, like, an intersection of, like, toxic masculinity and, like, capitalism, both sort of, like, mediating art. In some ways, like this this sounds like way too galaxy brain to start off with, but <laughs> that um you know, these these boys had these like really self-destructive patterns that were profitable for a very long time and like they made so much money off of being um self-destructive, like alcoholica rock gods, but then you know, it took their management company stepping in to actually um Get them to like relate to each other as people, and I I wonder what it would feel like to like have that interpersonal relationship, the people that you spend some the, like the most time of your life, mediated by this like giant business behind it. Yeah,
2: that's that's interesting. Like, I I think I must admit, maybe I missed the part where like he like literally made that connection. I also got the impression that he was kind of like. We've been doing this for you know 20 years or whatever, and like we can't just like talk to each other and like work. Ge- which is just sounds like someone who's like, I mean like valid point. Like it sucks that like you've known each other and like you you know can't resolve your issues, but also sounds like someone who's just you know kind of a little bit therapy resistant. Um, mm-hmm. going into yeah. the process. I also think it's really interesting that they did this during the process of trying to record an album, like, whether or not that was, uh, like, a management suggestion, like, to me, it was like, oh, that must be, like, really helpful to sort of have, like, a mediator on creative decisions, because it's more just like, let's make sure everyone's being heard and considered, like, that doesn't mean that, like, everybody's ideas need to be in there, but we, like, need to honor that everybody's, like, contributing to this. And particularly since their producer, who I, I would imagine would play more of that role, was, like, also, like, paying, playing bass and, like, kind of in the band yeah, yeah. for the duration of this. Um Bob I was just Rock. kind of like, oh, yeah, <laughs> Bob Rock. Totally his real name, I'm sure. Um, lately changed his name? Hope hope so. Yeah, I, I thought that was, an, and it just, like, struck me as, like, someone who's kind of interested in the process of how people like create things and not in like a floofy way more in like the spreadsheet kind of way where it's just sort of like okay what are like the specific things that they are doing to make this thing like come into existence and part of that was having these meetings that maybe felt like we're overanalyzing stuff but it's like no it's like kind of cool that they care to that point and like I don't know. I've had my dumb arguments about, like, comedy shit that I really believe in, so I'm always <laughs> just fascinated with, like, a different sort of, not subculture for in terms of, like, metal, but, you know what I mean, like, a different uh, kind of medium? Yeah, a different discipline, or even, like, I don't know, like, fucking, like, baking Instagram or whatever, like, the drama that goes on in those, like, super specific things, is so, like, that's the shit that that person cares about.
1: Yeah, totally. Uh, I, I want to clarify my position of something I said earlier, which is that I think that this doc is, like, kind of embarrassing for the band, and that, you know, if they had known better, they would never let it see the light of day. I, I mean that just in terms of what people expect from a rock documentary, or what people expect from, like, the image of musicians. Like, it it puts so many cracks in the facade and exposes a vulnerability that we did not have access to before, but, like... I love it. Nothing could more endear me to Metallica and want to spend time with their discography through a prism of some kind of monster than some kind of monster.
2: Yeah, probably like the worst thing that it reveals about them, like the most embarrassing thing. Did you guys notice the amount of clogs being worn
0: by (laughs) band members? I didn't notice the clogs. I noticed the flip-flops, though.
2: Yeah, okay, yeah. Well, like bad bad footwear or weird style choices... Partially it being the time period, partially it just being what it is. But uh, yeah, I saw a few people wearing those like, those like very solid black, kind of like when like a chef wears in like a restaurant, um, <laughs> yeah. which I, I, yeah, I don't know. I'm not a big clogs person.
0: So. I'm going to say I wear restaurant no slip Crocs almost every day now, that i <laughs> almost like, I think that Crocs are back in like an anti-fashion, yes. like- yeah what if what if we made normcore even uglier place but i don't think the metallica was doing that in an intentional provocateur sort of way
2: no i also don't think that like Lars ulrich is wearing like oversized adidas back basketball shorts and no shirt and like any sort of other than let's just like oh it's easier to drum in basketball <laughs> shorts uh and then i'll just no one's here so i'll just walk around like this the rest of the time too I'm
1: sorry, I interrupted you. This is, I want to talk about the clogs. Um, I I, I just wanted to bring it back to what you said about how it must be very helpful to have a a mediator when it comes to the creative decisions and, and to help sort of balance the input of the band. And I totally agree. It seems like their communication during this time was healthier than it had probably been to that point in time. But the music they're making is pretty bad, uh and and, and 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 the creative choices that they're making in this more egalitarian space are like pretty shitty. And like that's that's so fun to watch. There's this like weird irony where it's like as they're growing interpersonally and they're sort of healing these damaged relationships, they're like, not actually, like, reaping incredible creative rewards as a result. It's like they're they're almost like there's this, like, Beavis and Butthead thing between Lars and James <laughs> where, like, James will say something that is extremely dumb. Like, when he has this line about, like, uh, I wash your back so you don't stab mine and Lars is like, oh, that's cool. That's really smart. Or he's like, yeah. my lifestyle determines my death style. And Lars is like, whoa, that's amazing. It's so funny to watch... When they're, like, trying to prop each other up, but, like, creating really doofy music. I don't know. I'm not being articulate, but...
2: No, no, you're right. Yeah. And I think that, like, yeah, the lyrics
1: are awful.
2: And I think that's probably a lot of when I was, like, growing up, like, why I couldn't get into Metallica. Because I was like, this is just, like, dumb. (laughs) Like, this just sounds dumb. And, yeah, I am not thoroughly versed enough in metal to, like, comment on, like, what they were doing. Musically, I also think, like, I, you know, like the mediator kind of thing, I can also see how that could be, like, very annoying. It seems like they were at, like, such a place of broken communication that they really needed that because they needed to, like, learn how to respect each other and listen to each other. But one of my favorite moments of the film, uh, I'm going to call it a film, not a movie. Oh, it's
1: absolutely a film. This is one of my favorite documentaries (laughs) ever.
2: It's cinema. (laughs) Um, My favorite moment of the cinema film was when. I felt like Lars and James were, like, finally on the same page when they were both telling Phil, the therapist, like, we don't think we need you anymore, and, like, <laughs> you should be okay with that. And I was like, <laughs> it's, like, oh, man, they're yeah. finally, like, organically agreeing without, like, their hands being held or it being, like, this manufactured situation where they're, like, both really trying to support each other's ideas. They just naturally teamed up against Phil the therapist. I'm curious what you guys think of Phil.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's some thoughts about Phil, but I love that Lars essentially, he doesn't use the word gaslighting because it just wasn't in the consciousness that way at the time. But in that moment when Lars sticks up for James, he's like, no, we should be able to say it's time to go and you should take that note. Like, you can't try and get us to honor the process when we're Mm -hmm. saying it's just time to, to stop. It needs to
1: stop. Do you want to know what blew my mind in reading about Phil Towel, this licensed therapist?
2: Towel. I'm dying to hear more about Phil.
1: Phil's not a licensed therapist.
2: Of course he isn't. Of course
1: he 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 isn't. he He has no license. He is a career counselor. And when I thought about that, I was like, oh, this kind of recolors my reading of some of the film. Because a lot of times when they were like resistant to Phil or they felt like the boundaries they were maintaining were waning and, and were not appropriate. I was like, Oh, you guys are just, you're, you're being confronted by the therapeutic process. When in reality, like maybe Phil wasn't being appropriate. And like, maybe Phil wanted to spend too much time with the band and was giving them advice that was, you know, rooted more in his interest than theirs. I don't know. I think that's really, really fascinating.
2: I think even if he was a licensed therapist, there's like, that could totally happen where you're just like, uh, not I don't know, not self-aware enough or maybe not good enough of it at your, at your job to uh, know those boundaries. But it's interesting that he wasn't even, like, a social worker or anything. It was just sort of like, yeah. oh, I just, like, started, like, consulting companies on... management, for more and more famous people, and here I am.
1: Apparently Q Prime gave him a lot of money to try to keep Rage Against the Machine from breaking up, and he couldn't do it. <laughs> <laughs>
2: And that's why they are the true the true heroes of this era. They yeah. won't do
0: what you tell them, which mm-hmm. is to not break up. Yeah. Um, I think part of I think part of the issue for Phil might have been also that I think it's harder to maintain those kind of boundaries when you have one client. Right.
1: Like he is with that
0: one band that they say in the doc, like we're paying you forty thousand dollars to essentially be on call, right? And yeah. like he lives in Kansas City, and he has to fly out, and just like that's the only people he's seeing so i think that's a recipe for countertransference like a motherfucker Mm -hmm. because you're spending all of your time thinking about these other people you're going to like whether you want to or not you're gonna have trouble keeping the boundary up because you don't have other people's demands on you in the way that you would normally as a therapist like you can't put it down ever
1: do you want to know another thought that I had? And I don't want to get too in the weeds, but I kind of wonder if managers are more inclined to pay a counselor rather than a licensed therapist, because there is the risk that a licensed therapist might lead the artist to a conclusion that maybe it is healthier for them to break up, right? Or like maybe what they're doing is not working in a way that is like not in their financial interest.
0: I will say also that licensed therapists have certain things that they have to mandatorily report to various governing bodies or they will lose their license. So
1: also an interesting angle.
0: Like, I'm not saying there's anything that sus going on, but I could also see why you as a management company of like a edgy, edgy (laughs) rock band, you might want somebody who has fewer mandatory reportings that they have to do.
2: Those are interesting points, and I, I wonder if either of those things were factors. I think it was mostly just, like, about Phil's pedigree. Like, I forget what they rattled off, like, at the beginning of, like, oh, he's worked with da-da-da, da-da-da. And it was just probably, like, oh, what do we do about this band that's fighting? Well, this is, like, the guy. This is the guy right. that you call for that. Another moment that probably, I think probably one of the most uncomfortable moments watching for me also involved Phil, I don't know, maybe not uncomfortable, but more just like, I'm going to like totally reverse that and go delicious. One of the most delicious (laughs) moments was, um, when like after they have that sort of like contentious, uh, conversation about, you know, whether or not it's time for Phil to leave, like they're getting to the end, they're finishing up the album. And James is like telling Phil in front of everybody, like at that kitchen table or whatever, just like talking about how, wonderful this process has been and, like, what he's done, and I feel like he, in that moment, like, I think he's being sincere, but I feel like if you watching Phil, I was like, he's just like, uh-huh, yeah, okay, yeah, sure, alright, thanks, buddy, you're firing me, so, <laughs> whatever, fuck you.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I, I was, that, that last, like, kitchen table where James is being so open, I wrote down, like, yeah, these guys are dummies, but it's incredible that that he's grown so much from being like the door slamming guy to someone who's like i would i just would like to feel the feeling i don't want to run away from the feeling this time i'm like oh damn either phil or that rehab facility really fucking worked like go off
2: yeah yeah probably more the rehab than phil (laughs) um i
1: i think there's a boyish quality to each of the like three core members of the band that is really endearing watching this movie and they all have wildly different personalities and obviously we agree that kirk is the sweetie and definitely the least annoying (laughs) of them but like they're all just they're like children the way they communicate the way they conduct themselves and and this this watching them grow up um over the course of the 715 days that they filmed this doc is really special and and unique
0: speaking of them all being children of varying levels of annoyance i feel like this is a great way to segue into my secret favorite like side character of the movie, Lars Ulrich's wizard father.
1: Oh my god!
2: <laughs> oh man, yes, incredible.
0: <laughs> um, I I kind of didn't know this, so I I I used to I knew that that Lars Ulrich had been like a pro tennis player that switched to drumming, but I didn't know that he I didn't know, didn't, that. Was, I didn't know actually, that either. Wow, he was supposed to be a third generation professional tennis player. His dad. His dad, the wizard Torben Ulrich. Torben Ulrich is an incredible name.
1: That's very funny.
0: Was a pro player, and then Torben's dad was also a pro player, and um. Mm. But Ulrich wound up doing drumming instead, and he has the the need to like prove stuff to his dad. I think is so deep and so unpacked. Yeah. <laughs> uh, oh when yeah. His, when his father is like, if. If you were asking me as an impartial observer about this music, I would say delete that.
1: The use of the word yeah. "delete" is so harsh.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's,
1: it's just so matter of fact.
0: And
2: chronologically, like, who knows how? Like, you know, the the talk they had when they're like out visiting Lars's property or whatever. And Phil's it's, it's Lars, his dad, and Phil. And then um, in terms of like the documentary, the next scene we see is that scene Bethy was just talking about. But the previous scene, like, out in the field, is, like, Phil is trying to get Lars to say, like, to his dad, you know, voice, like, what that pressure feels like, or just, like, articulate it at, at all. And it's interesting because, like, his dad, you know, says that he's, essentially that he's proud of him, or just, like, he mm-hmm. thinks that, like, Metallica has really done something, like, interesting and, like, put something, like, new into the world with their work. Yeah, it's, like, one of those things where... Even hearing that once will never make up for all the times when his day-to-day reaction is delete that.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: but even that, what he says is almost like backhanded because he's like saying that it's part of a like, he's saying Metallica definitely has a place in a larger chronology of rock music. Sure. Is, like, kind yeah. Of like, yeah, you guys are building on what the Beatles did first It was like how it starts. It's like, but now people are building off you. But it's like oh, it's yeah. still it's very. Um, Torben's doing his best, but
1: <laughs> is he still...
0: is Torben doing I... his best? Mm, I think so. I'm giving <laughs> Torbin some credit. I will I will grant him that grace. I think Torben is trying.
1: I yeah I my my read on him and it was pretty limited. I I th- I thought he seemed decently supportive and maybe just thought he was being pragmatic and helpful by uh, <laughs> pushing back on some of the creative choices they were making. But uh, yeah, he's, he's a really special presence. I would love to see what they left on the cutting room floor.
0: <laughs> I don't think he's wrong. They should delete it.
2: <laughs> Where's that buddy comedy of Lars and Or maybe, maybe just Phil and Phil and torbin Oh, this is Torben. Yeah. <laughs> I almost called him Tordan. I was like, what's his name?
1: I think there could be a supercut of moments in some kind of monster where one or multiple people are very excited about something they've created. Um, and the person <laughs> who's listening to it gives them very harsh feedback, and you see them react in real time, and everyone's got their own way of responding. Like, Kirk always looks a little bit defeated. Lars kind of laughs, but you can tell he's masking something really dark. James is just making kind of, like, the same stoic face he's always making. But, like, there, there's... There are all of these moments that are so raw that I, I almost wanted to rewind and watch again because they're so revealing, even though they're very small. I don't know. I, I'll i be honest. I like this movie.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I want to jump back into talking about the album St. Anger that comes out of this because I was, after we finished the movie, uh, while I was doing like more background research, I was just listening to the album and I was like, this doesn't sound done. Mm. It is... It is so underproduced. the 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 vocals are not like meshed in with the the music at all. They just sound so raw. They need I don't know reverb. I'm I'm not a producer. Producer Colin can weigh in, but it just sounds it sounds like an album that I would have heard from like a local metal band, like their DIY album. But it's fucking Metallica.
1: <laughs> uh, it's it's like a weird. It, it was a weird moment in rock production, like everything feels very isolated on the album. But the one thing that I wish was addressed in the doc in some form is the snare sound on St. Anger is notoriously awful. It's this like, it, it it's like, mixed way too hot. And it's like, very sharp and trebly. Mm-hmm. Um, But it doesn't quite sound like a drum. Anyway, if you're listening to St. Anger, listen specifically to the snare drum, and it's gonna <laughs> unlock the album for you in a way that you don't want it to be.
0: <laughs> it does, it just sounds so, like, chugga-chugga.
2: Yeah, I wonder how much of that is, like, the process by which they made it versus, like, you were saying, like, that was a trend in rock music at the time to sort of, like, have everything so isolated. Yeah, I, like, barely remember the title track. I don't really... Not that... I mean, I was never, like, huge into Metallica, but I don't... I can't... I don't think I could even, like, hum you more than two seconds of the title track in terms of memorable songs taken from that.
1: It's... it's not... super memorable album on the whole it's interesting if you look at the critical reception it's not scathing i think the general Mm. the general consensus is like metallica's back they're doing something fierce and daring and uh i i don't (laughs) necessarily think that they are but like if you see them play a show now there is an absence of saint anger there's very very little of it there's like a little Mm -hmm. bit of death magnetic which is the one that came after it but like I, I think I think this was an important time for them as a band, but I don't think it's like an enduring document of, I don't know, the essential Metallica.
0: I mean, this was their last album that really performed the way that Metallica had come to thinking of a Metallica album as performing. But I, that could also partially beca- be because this is the last, uh, it's not pre-Napster, but like peri-Napster album. So you you could blame any underperforming later on that just CDs don't sell anymore. Mm, how
2: convenient.
1: Yeah, their next record came out in 08, right? Yeah.
0: Yeah, and some some often I'm listening to the songs on it and I'm like, "This are they? Do they think their system of a down what's happening?"
2: <laughs> it's so interesting to me that you guys did background research because like, of course you did. I had a I had a few moments where I was like, "Should I be taking notes during this?" and I was like, it's fine. Uh And then, <laughs> other than that, I Wikipedia'd Robert, the 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 new basis that is introduced uh later in the movie, just to like see what his deal was. And I learned that he was previously, um, among other things, in the band, suicidal tendencies, which I have a very embarrassing MySpace era story.
1: About. <laughs> Do you want to share? Or? Yeah.
2: Oh, I, yeah, sure, I can share. Um, so I was like. I don't know, probably 18 or 19, I had a crush on this guy that I worked with. And, you know, I was like, punk. I wasn't, I was like, not, I, was, I wasn't listening to like blink eighty two. Like I was listening to like stuff from like the 80s, but like not as like steeped in knowledge as maybe I liked to imagine myself as. Um, and he posted something on MySpace about like, suicidal tendencies um and at that point in my life i was also going through a mental health crisis so i reached out to this guy i had a crush on to be like hey like i saw your post and just like i i just want you to know like i've experienced similar things and like if you ever want to talk and he was like oh yeah i was talking about the band and i was just like oh okay (laughs) we did end up dating so maybe that naivete
0: was endearing i don't know i mean but posting suicidal tendencies my lyrics on MySpace isn't not a cry for help. That's true. So That's true. You are still picking it up.
1: <laughs> Bethy, I, th- I think you're right. I love the the sequence of the documentary when they're auditioning the bass player, and they like immediately take to Robert Trujillo. Like he, mm-hmm. I I find his energy to be very endearing like there's a lot of like sweetness in this documentary oddly enough and i don't know the enthusiasm that he brings and his preparedness and the way the band is like excited to offer him a million dollars it's it's fun
0: yeah i like and and the way that like lars is especially excited it's like these songs haven't been played the way they've been supposed to like i feel like that sucks for jason newstead to hear that but they're excited he's got
1: echo brain that's true he's fine
0: uh Jason is the future Metallica is the past as Lars Ulrich says at the echo brain show he's very dramatic he's very dramatic
2: (laughs) I wonder how how's echo brain doing these days should we check in with echo brain has anybody talked to echo brain recently
1: this is the gap in our research I'm actually surprised neither Bethy nor I did a deep dive into echo brain um, I feel like normally Echo Brain is like the kind of rabbit hole that Bethy or I would go down, but neither of us <laughs> did.
0: Um, Echo Brain stopped performing in 2005. I am seeing right now.
1: Oof, short run.
2: Okay. Yeah, and the and this was released in 2004, which means like filming was like oh two oh three.
1: They <laughs> shot 2001 to 2003 for 715 days, which is pretty crazy.
0: I was looking at like when the movie starts, and they say like it's, I don't know, April 2001 or something. And I'm like, oh no, we're going to see Metallica's 9 11 story. <laughs> but we don't. And now I'm kind of mad. <laughs> because Metallica is bigger than 9 mm. 11, <laughs>
2: You don't have to worry about never forgetting Metallica. They're forever.
1: I imagine this is like when Jared Leto emerged from his weird, like, <laughs> meditation retreat three weeks into the COVID-19 crisis, and he was like, wow, the world is a lot different from when I went inside and shut my phone off. I just imagine that Metallica was, like, in the Presidio in San Francisco and found out about 9-11 on, like, nine thirty. I
0: think he might have been in rehab by then.
2: Well, that's what I was going to say. Maybe James Hetfield, like, went straight into rehab and just, like, missed it. So, like, (laughs) he comes out, like, nearly... I don't know how long he was in the rehab, but he doesn't come back to, like, the recording process for, like, nine months or, like, nearly a year, I think they said. (laughs) (laughs) his first day is, like, oh, man, good to have you back, buddy. Like, we have... we need to talk about 9-11. And he's just like, wait, what? And they just spent a whole day catching him up.
1: <laughs> when James was in rehab, they knew how much he loves America and they felt like it was important to his healing process to insulate <laughs> him from the violence. of 9-11.
0: Yeah. They didn't want to interrupt his recovery. I want to talk more about James Hetfield's recovery. Well, the main thing I was struck by it for is uh, that I guess his rock bottom was when he, like, fucked off to Russia for two weeks to kill bears and missed his son's first birthday.
2: Yeah.
1: Yeah. Wait, was that in the doc? Did I miss that? Yeah, that was in oh, the doc. Oh, yeah.
0: It's right before, yeah, he he's talking about, him, like, the title card about him checking into rehab. Yeah, he's
2: talking about the hunting trip. He's talking about, like, missing his son's whatever birthday. And he's like, I mean, I called, of course, and we did, like, a little toast to him with, like, the vodka, and it was just sort of, like, I can't remember now, was that him talking before he went to rehab, or was that him reflecting on that time? Because it seemed like he was, like, regretful of it, like, very much in the moment, but, uh... I think
0: that it cut in both, because it was, like, part of it was the, like, the press tour that they were doing at the very end, that they kept, Mm -hmm. like, cutting to, like, the, the junket that they were doing, and then part of it was, like, right before he went into rehab.
2: Okay. Yeah, I I was, I was surprised by how committed he was to the process and, like, to being like, no, like, I have to have a schedule. I really need, like, this is... Uh, I can understand how that would be, like, frustrating for the other band members, for sure. But, yeah, I thought it was I don't know, a real sign of commitment to, like, trying to stabilize himself at post-rehab and, like, be a better more present husband and father.
0: Yeah, I was... I kept sort of, like, ping-ponging on whose, like, side I was on for, like, I guess the early part of James's recovery in mm-hmm. the movie, because when, when he's still in rehab and Lars is, like, he says that it's, like, a betrayal, or I wrote down the word he used, disrespected. He felt disrespected that James went to rehab, and I was like, okay, right. no, we're not doing that. Yeah. But yeah. then when he comes back I, I also think that it's great that he's doing like the one to four thing but he's or the noon to four thing but he's like but I don't want you guys to be working either during that time because right. I need a, a, a little bit of control. It's like I mm-hmm. I understand that you feel out of control of your life right now but I don't think asserting your control issues on the rest of your band is necessarily the way forward <laughs> especially yeah. since you pushed Jason out of the band. Mm-hmm. because he couldn't give his all because of yeah and right now you literally can't give your all like you actually have to you are in the process of rearranging your priorities and you are recalcitrant to do that which makes sense but you can't the band isn't as important to you as your recovery and your family so you should let the people who only have the band kind of do some shit yeah i don't know that was my opinion
1: I think the way that his his insecurity and sort of his codependency are kind of laid bare in the film is really amazing. Like, I think to me the most raw moment is when they're talking about Jason Newstead and he's like, I mean, he can't be in another band, man. I don't want to feel like Metallica's not enough. And, like, in that mm-hmm. moment, you're like, oh, my God, James Hetfield's entire identity is Metallica. And for someone else in the mm-hmm. band to have anything but that is a rejection of him. And that kind of, like, reemerges in in the post-rehab zone, where he's like, you guys can't be working on this without me. Like, this is me, this is us, ah.
2: Yeah. For me, probably the most uh, deepest moment of the film was when... Lars had to sell his Basquiat and drop his champagne. (laughs) Oh, my God. I actually, um, on the one hand, I think it's, like, he did seem like he had a genuine sort of, like, appreciation and relationship for a lot of that artwork, but, like, that's one of the things that, like, we didn't need to see them on camera. And, like, like, what Bethy just was saying about, you know, he said he felt disrespected. I can... I can visual I can like imagine a world in which like you're like deep in it in therapy and you're just saying you're like I know this isn't logical or whatever I know this isn't fair but this is how I feel. But yeah, to just have <laughs> that in there does not make you look good. And frankly, I think he should have kept the basket out. I think everything everything else I was like, yeah, sure, sell that. But I was like, no, this this one's dope and like also you you really seem to have a connection with it. I don't know.
1: That art selling section to me feels like the one time the the filmmaker's pov is like making fun of him like it it feels (laughs) the movie is like laughing at lars there i feel um Mm -hmm. and one thing i read about after the film was wrapped and sort of how it was handled and finalized that i thought was really fascinating is the band bought it and they control it fully and after they purchased it James was talking to Lars and he's like, I don't want this art section in the movie. I think it's bad and I think it's embarrassing. And (laughs) Lars's response was, if we're releasing a portrait of Metallica that is honest, this is a part of me. Like this is a part of my passion, my love for art. And like, I think that's kind of funny, but also like, a big part of why the documentary works and feels kind of special because they each have like lapses of self-awareness and so they allow these things to be seen that a more discerning person might not and so i i don't know that's that that just feels like an access that we shouldn't have
2: yeah as you were describing that i was like oh okay like that's interesting that he was like you know warts and all but then it was just like no no no. We need to note that I like art. <laughs> like that's that's yeah, that's not self aware at all in terms of that reasoning.
1: Also hearing the numbers that people are throwing down for that art when oh, yeah. are half of it, it's like, dude, don't don't show us this. We don't wanna yeah. know.
0: Like we know we know you make billions. Yeah, exactly. That we're already in like the PR nightmare of the rich Metallica fucks from their ivory tower are taking the downloads (laughs) from the plebs. Right. this This just builds up that divide even further.
2: Right. And it's like, you know, we all know you make millions of dollars, but like, I'm sure you like to think of yourself as not someone who's, I don't know, like that kind of rich guy, but it's like, you are totally like that. You That's, you Maybe you always aspired to be that, but either way, you've totally become that kind of rich guy.
0: It's like a it's a divide within the band that Lars was born like upper middle class, mm-hmm. you know, third generation of pro athletes. He was born like a famous kid mm-hmm. in Denmark. So like he has it, it's it, it's just like a, a difference of priorities or like he's has a little bit more of an eye towards... legacy maybe Mm -hmm. that the others don't that looks that can look weird from a poor perspective
2: yeah there were times like certainly that he was just like outright insensitive or things looked weird i can't recall any specific moment right now but i do like overall i felt like especially for like maybe the first half or so i found myself like kind of agreeing with lars on a lot of things which is not what most of what i know about lars ulrich is like that fucking like dork who cared about napster from metallica so that was like just like a surprising find for me personally oh another thought that occurred to me while we were talking is i wanted to ask you guys do you think jay-z and beyonce now own is Ooh, that is a great question. That would be really interesting to know.
1: Let's email them. <laughs>
2: yeah, it's probably just like J and Bay at mac.com Yeah, they have like they each have their separate email accounts, but then they have like their their one that they share for like scheduling and like family stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and art curation. Makes yeah. And art curation. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's how they communicate with yeah <laughs> Yeah, the auction schedule goes straight to their like joint Google Cal. Um and then I was I was gonna say that I I am prepared to reveal something even more embarrassing than empathize, it's simply empathizing with Lars Ulrich. Okay. Another thing that surprised me was that when he has his like hair cut properly, I was like, middle aged Lars is like kinda cute. Like I kinda dig this. <laughs> Wait, which is the proper cut? Explain to me. <laughs> when it's like really starting to like grow out, it, it emphasizes that like this is a man who is balding, and it looks like he's just trying to like hold on to some hair. But when it's cut short, I was like, oh no, like I think this looks this looks kind of good, and I don't know, uh, does it doesn't make his face look so like moony. <laughs> like, doesn't make it look so. I don't. I don't know. Uh, this is all just getting really hyper focused on someone's looks, which feels. Inappropriate. I'm mostly sharing because Bethy is familiar with my uh maybe off center sort of celebrity crushes. Like the time <laughs> I revealed to our writers room that my celebrity crush growing up was always Kieran Culkin, and people drag me for it. And now we're. Which in... I didn't
0: understand. Yeah, yeah, you
2: didn't. You know, thank you for relating. Also, but and now like, hey, we're in season three of Succession, and like. Everybody thinks he's hot now, so maybe things will come around for Lars Ulrich. I'll be vindicated <laughs> on that level too. That's why I felt comfortable revealing this, because I have, I have hope and faith.
1: <laughs> Allison famously ahead of the curve. Um, <laughs> the- <laughs>
2: on, 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 <laughs> on hotness. <laughs> on gauging male celebrities' hotness. <laughs>
1: The one time Lars's look is a huge whiff, which is the funniest one because it's the one he puts on before he takes the world stage, which is that he gets the shittiest fucking goatee before they <laughs> tour Saint Anger. There's a shot of him right before he takes the stage at the end, and it's like just this full, thick, black goatee, and it's a disaster. <laughs> but otherwise, he's a cutie.
0: You know who kept their hair? Who? Dave Mustaine. Still. Full head, oh yeah, full ginge,
2: very thick, very very. He's working with a lot there. Uh,
1: a quick note about that Dave Mustaine section. He didn't want it to be in the doc, and was so mad. And why did he... so? So he signed a performance release before, or an appearance release before they filmed that section, and then later said he didn't want it in the documentary, but they mm. put it in anyway. He said he felt like it made him look bad and petty. But I I actually, I I don't know, I I kind of thought that section was kind of intimate and nice. I think the way that Dave Mustaine was like, this is really hard for me. I'm really sad. Like, you know, the degree to which you empathize with that or care how Dave Mustaine feels, given his own success and kind of being an asshole, you know, is, is something else. But like. I kind of feel for him in that scene, and I think it's nice what's happening between him and Lars, even if it's not ultimately resolved.
0: Mm-hmm. I think he looks petty and
2: bad. <laughs> I thought he looked petty and bad, but also, like, I could see his side of things on, even if I didn't agree, I was like, okay, like I can kind of like get where you're coming from and, like, why you know, feeling like you don't have creative freedom to do this thing you really want to do because James Hetfield uh, can't bear the thought of anyone doing anything outside of Metallica. I'm like, that sucks. That that would suck, but yeah, mostly I thought he looked pretty shitty.
1: <laughs> I think the Dave Mustaine thing with Metallica though is more that he was just like a drunk yeah. asshole. Like I think he actually was like a nightmare for them to work oh, with, I'm and sorry. then he got. Oh, you're thinking of the getting... bass player? Yeah, yeah,
2: I'm getting them mixed up.
1: Uh, no, Dave Mustaine is like he has like long orange yes. hair, and he's like, yes. oh, it's... people make fun of me on the street. He, like, yeah. was a huge asshole, and then now he's just sort of, like, staring at, like, the monolith that is Metallica. But, like, I don't know, Megadeth right, is huge, right. so.
2: Yeah, that that was, like, the thing to me, too, that it was just, like, now that I have unmixed these two fellows up in my brain, yeah, it's, like, you're, like, you're not doing bad, man. Uh, and I think he says something like that. It's just, like, oh, but, you know, anyone else might say that, like, I, my career has been successful, like, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, I don't know. To be like still in that much pain over it, like maybe I maybe it's just a function of it was the first time that they were really digging into it together. But yeah, he doesn't he doesn't look great.
0: <laughs> I would I would hope that it was he doesn't normally feel that way on a day where he's not meeting face to face with Lars Alwick for the first time in like 20 years. I'm hoping that Yes. he has a little bit more perspective on the successes that he has had because I I knew that Dave Mustaine had been in Meg, that had been in Metallica and got fired, and did Megadeth. But he was only in the band for like a year.
1: A year, yeah. Mm. A year. Lars gave uh, Lars gave a statement <laughs> after Dave Mustaine gave his statement in response to the film, where he was just totally dismissive. He was like, "Yeah, Dave Mustaine was in our band for a year. He never played on a record. I don't know why he's still upset about this." <laughs>
2: <laughs> I don't know, given the amount of time that he kind of gave him, like, maybe it was just because it was like, I'll do this because the directors want to have this on camera. But I feel like he, he gave him a, a good amount of time to sort of like
0: air things. So, And they did eventually, like, completely squash the beef, like Metallica and Megadeth toured together in like 2010. Yeah. Yeah, You know, and I you have to assume that part of the issue is that the press keeps opening the wound again and again. Like, every interview Dave Mustaine has, I'm sure, That's involves true. Metallica, mm-hmm. you know?
1: It's a great era for feuding musicians. The
0: only reason
2: we're talking about him right now. <laughs>
1: Um, one like larger meta production thing that I think is really fascinating and maybe will only be fascinating to me but this was originally intended to be like a VH1 docu-series capitalizing on the fame of Metallica it wasn't intended to be sad but little did they know Metallica (laughs) were kind of down bad but the other piece of this that I think is fascinating is that Joe Berlinger who was one of two filmmakers with Bruce Sanofsky was coming off of Blair Witch 2 which was a Fucking bomb and kind of considered to be a disastrous sequel and so he went back to metallica having collaborated with them on a previous documentary and it's like he was also coming from this sort of like vulnerable low point in his career and i think there is just something about the way all of that mixes together that just something really special emerged it's just people sort of navigating those feelings and those career lows
0: I think it's so interesting because the the work that the Berlinger and Sanofsky did before this was Paradise Lost, like the the West Memphis Three thing, and like that's how they knew Metallica it was Metallica was letting them license music for this because they believed in freeing the West Memphis Three. So the fact that that Berlinger Berlinger tried to go into scripted features and like whiffed big time. <laughs> And then it was like, okay, back to rock docs, and then got another huge success off of that. I wonder what, I don't know, it's interesting to see one's choices, sort of, uh, different avenues for creative expression perhaps being shut down by, like, the Vox Populi in that way.
2: Mm. I mean, on the other hand, it could be clarifying for them, okay, like, oh, okay, like, this is, like, my point of view as a filmmaker or whatever, this is, like, the kind of stuff I need. But I, yeah you know, yeah. maybe it's, it's and
0: maybe a mix of both. Yeah, it could be very affirming to be like, Oh, I I am really good at this. Never mind. I am mm-hmm. actually fucking good at this.
1: I think it would be it would be something else if they had made a really hacky rock documentary, but one that had been successful. Instead, they made this which feels pretty singular in the larger rock landscape. Yeah.
2: And I think you're right. Like, pro- it's not just that Oh, there was a personal relationship over like the licensing of the music or whatever. It's I think it's There's a personal relationship, plus these guys could kind of empathize with what they were going through in their careers that maybe, I don't know, maybe that influenced how much access they gave them and, like, why they persisted, even though, you know, when they had that meeting of, like, should this film even continue at all, that they were, both sides were willing to, like, even kind of sit down and have that conversation.
1: Totally.
0: Yeah, and the fact that it's guys who do understand metal fandom, better than probably any other documentarian I think probably helps earn a lot of trust too because Mm -hmm. I think if you're if you're Metallica if you're any like big metal band it would make sense to be pretty leery of anybody doing documentaries or profiles of you because there's gonna be like the tropes of like the excess the blood the satanic imagery these are weird dudes with bad brains there's so many like traps of that you could fall into but the fact that like they met trying to specifically debunk certain notions in the public memory or public image of of metal um i think probably helped a lot too
1: i feel confident that in their 715 days of video capture there is a this is spinal tap level like
2: (laughs) humiliating
1: documentary (laughs) like
0: they could have just
1: cut together every dumb thing these guys said Every stupid thing that happened to them, and that would probably have been equally successful, but instead they opted for this, which is just much more emotionally interesting
0: it's a, It's ahead of its time in many ways, not without dumb things being said though
1: oh, I laugh a lot watching this
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah I think it yeah, i think for for those
2: reasons, it is like very much like ahead of its time, um or it was when it when it came out, yeah, and it's it's like so much more than just capturing our recording process or like following a band
0: i am going to see if i missed any quotes that i really wanted to speaking of dumb things that they said that was captured on camera
2: yeah i feel like this was getting like too sincere too earnest i was just like having the thought to myself of like am i like too like emotionally invested in some kind of monster so let's let's please bring it back to dumb shit they say. I am I am
1: equally invested as I am like laughing and rolling my eyes I, while I think there is a spinal tap version of this I think a lot of this does feel like Spinal Tap. yeah and I have a lot
0: of affection <laughs> yeah. for spinal tap as well as like a group and I want them to succeed and be happy also Bob Rock looks like Michael McKean like Michael McKean <laughs> could play Bob Rock easily
1: <laughs> oh my god you're right
0: when when they're auditioning Robert, Lars says like he he feels like they have to give him like more time or something to like make him feel like he's really part of it. And and uh, welcome. I think Bob says he said he was fine. He said he's good to go. And Lars says it's not about what he says; it's about how I feel.
1: Yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and that's a subtext of everything Lars Ulrich ever says. <laughs> That, yeah, totally. Yeah, <laughs> um, I also wanted to just take a minute to to have a lot of affection for the MTV News like inserts. The only way that they talk about news and the whole like the any oh, news yeah. of any kind in the world is only what the MTV News. What did they call them? They weren't news VJs. Reporters have to say what Gideon Diego and the and the team have to say about it.
2: <laughs> yeah, I love that that was kind of like how we knew where we were in time. Like we'd get those MTV <laughs> news updates that were like kind of savage some of them, which I, you know, I guess is like accurate for the attitudes of the times, which is sort of like dismissive and kind of <laughs> shitty. It's kind of <laughs> shitty. <laughs>
1: Am I misremembering this, or in one of them are they talking about how Jason Newstead has been uh, more productive in in the ensuing years do, than his yeah. bandmates?
0: Yes, they like yes, take yes. a
1: take a shot at the band.
0: <laughs> um, fucked up. I I love that this now puts this movie and Josie and the Pussycats as two movies in conversation where <laughs> exposition is only delivered via MTV News VJ contributions. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Do you think that the filmmakers were maybe influenced by each other in in that instance? I think that was probably very intentional. <laughs> I don't know which one came first, but I like to imagine them being, "Oh, I really like, I really like that thing they did in Josie and the Pussycats." <laughs>
1: I do Maybe actually think programming that. a double feature of Josie and the Pussycats and some kind of monster would It'd be
0: fruitful. Be
1: cool. That would be a mm. cool thing to do. I think you'd probably have to open with some kind of monster. I think you'd have to come down on like the 90-minute high of Josie and the Pussycats. But... I, I
0: think that'd be nice, actually. Who involved in those two projects
2: would you uh, have on the panel afterwards for the audience to, to have a Q&A
1: with? Great question.
0: Well, obviously you have to get... Like Serena Alchul or Sway or Gideon Diego to be the moderator. So It has to be a former MTV Mm, News mm -hmm. DJ who's the moderator of the panel.
2: Yeah, I think Sway's update in the movie was probably the harshest. I can't remember what it was, but I just remember thinking like, whoa, (laughs) Sway's (laughs) going hard. (laughs) I feel like the only person who would enthusiastically agree to do it would be Tara Reed, and she would have like not much of substance. I think
0: Tara Reed and Lars Ulrich in a in a panel could be that could be something. I'm not sure what it would be, but it would be something. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, with sway moderate.
2: (laughs) Yeah.
1: <laughs> let's let's email metrograph let's email let's brain Z
0: and beyonce again like just reply to the former thread just by the yes. way we yes. have this idea for a panel they've got to have some influence over there over
2: there at the music television network probably oh man i'm just like picturing sway having like the hardest having to work the hardest he's ever had to work in his life to corral <laughs> <our soul. laughs> not there's not enough money in the world to pay him for that service that he'd be doing to humanity.
0: we did it
1: i feel like we did it i feel like uh i feel like we nailed some kind of monster i hope that there is a takeaway that makes someone want to watch this who hasn't seen it already
2: one just one more question for you i'm just curious did you guys each watch it all in one sitting i kept
0: taking breaks throughout the day um i watched it on a plane on multiple planes
1: (laughs) okay I watched it in one sitting, but I think it's because I I really like a fly on the wall energy, and I get really absorbed by it, and it's an opportunity for me to just sort of ignore everything else. So I I, I <laughs> sat through it, and it was it was I, I had a great time.
0: Oh wait, I do have one more question. Also, I haven't seen Get Back yet, but have y'all? Uh,
1: I've watched the first part.
2: I've only like my. My husband's been watching and I've been kind of like half watching while he has it on.
0: I love that we're talking about some kind of monster during peak Get Back discourse. This is going to come out post-peak Get Back discourse, but we're like, (laughs) no, no, no. We have a different recording an album and maybe breaking up Doc to talk about.
1: (laughs) Yeah, Get get Back is like it feels less like narrativized. It, it, it feels even more fly on the wall because you're not like cutting away to talking heads and stuff. But um, yeah, no, they definitely converse with each other in an interesting way. Yeah, I
0: heard Peter Jackson say that was by design just because like, well, I wasn't there. So I feel like yeah. if I put a false narrative on top of it, that gets away from just being in the room with these guys. But I know that that scene of like Paul figuring out get back, People were, like, tweeting that a lot. And then, like, a very similar scene happens when they're trying to figure out the song Temptation. And it's like, oh, yeah, that's it. We got it. We figured it out. Or, like, <laughs> figuring out, like, the the sort of syncopated way to sing the lyrics on Frantic. You know? Just seeing all the creativity bloom oh, yeah. like that is really inspiring and powerful.
1: Watching James Hetfield think that he's got something profound with frantic, tick, 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 tock is, uh... Really special. That's that's kind of the height of cinema to me.
2: Oh my god, I can't believe I can't believe we went this whole time without talking about the Lou Reed Metallica collaboration.
1: <laughs> Lulu.
2: Yeah. Terrible. Terrible. Technically the last <laughs> album Lou Reed made before his death, unfortunately.
1: There have been yeah. some efforts to reclaim uh both that and Metal Machine for Thanks, Lou Jim. Reed. Um mm-hmm. but uh I I don't have a strong opinion on either. Lulu, Lulu is tough to listen to.
0: I did not enjoy it. I think Metal Machine has been like reclaimed by like the noise people. <laughs> I just remember like watching the
2: the rock and roll Hall of Fame performance that sparked this unique collaboration, and I've gone back and rewatched it because my memory of it is different, and unfortunately. I prefer my my memory of the way that James Hetfield sings the song because in my mind it's like sweet yeah, like with a yeah at the end of all of them and he doesn't actually do that. I don't think he does that at all when I've gone back and watched the performance but I prefer to think of it that way because that's what he sounds like.
1: You should do it at karaoke. It's an opportunity (laughs) to inflect it with a bit of Allison.
2: (laughs) Can you imagine?
1: (laughs) Uh, uh, It's a dream. Allison, if uh, people loved listening to this podcast episode and 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 want to see what you have to say, where can they find you online?
2: <laughs> oh, um, <laughs> I, I tweet like either uh, like a big blur of tweets at once or not at all for five months. So, but I suppose you could find me at at Allison i been on Twitter, um, right. or I don't know, just like email me <laughs> first name dot last name at gmail. <laughs>
1: When you're done emailing Beyonce and Jay-Z, email Allison.
2: Yeah, it's not some big secret.
1: Bethy, are you on Twitter?
0: Yeah, um, I'm at Twitter at BethyBSQU. Thomas, are you on Twitter?
1: I am on Twitter, but not only am I on Twitter, the show is on Twitter. You can find me at handsome underscore pal, and you can find the show at movie bar Pod.
0: Mm-hmm. And you can find the show on Instagram at moviebar underscore pod. You can find me on Instagram at BethyBSQU and you can find Thomas on Instagram if you work for
1: it. (laughs) Yeah, you you gotta find it.
0: That's the secret. (laughs)
2: Thank you very much. It was so much fun. I think we had a really good conversation, (laughs) which is not something I ever thought I would say about anything having to do with Metallica, really. Um, So, yeah, signing off. Stay safe. Stay at home go watch a movie at the bar when it's safe to not stay at home Oh, so that was hell yeah nailed it i think
1: <laughs> watching movies at the bar is edited by colin jenkins with show art by Lindsay farrell and that theme you hear at the top that's quentin mulligan